So this week, my friend Rob, uh, who is the high school pastor at Church of Our Savior, um, sent me this email. He called me and said, you know, there's a couple of people in our high school group that have a couple of questions about God. And I was thinking maybe you could come in and we could just get some pizza and you could answer some questions. And I was like, yeah, that sounds good. I mean, what, what's your job? <laughs> what do you do at that church? And um, so I said, you know, it, it'd be, uh, sure, maybe I could find some time on my schedule to do that. Why don't you give me a couple of uh, questions and send me my email. So he sent me this email. Why doesn't God stop sadness, pain, and hunger in the world? <laughs> Why doesn't God answer me when I have a question? Why are we here and what is the meaning of life? <laughs> How can God make a whole planet by himself? When will, end, when will the end of time come? Four years Does God punish people for doing bad things? Is Jesus just a good teacher, son of God, or son of man? How do we know if Jesus rose from the dead? How are the Jews the chosen one? How can Jesus be humble if he wrote a whole book about himself? Then he ends with, so when do you want to get together? <laughs> How about tomorrow? Just send them the website, right? yeah. yeah, just send them the whole Yeah, that's actually what I was thinking. Yeah. Is like, a lot of this, of course, that's what Exodus is here for. I mean, we are here to take on these questions and not answer them in one talk, you know, that our series go on for six to ten weeks sometimes. So maybe I should just refer them to the Exodus website and they can go download all the stuff. <laughs> We've got four more weeks to go in the book of Matthew, and we're timing it to end right around Easter. Tonight we're starting chapter 26, and let me just review a little bit from last week. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that Jesus has predicted his death, he's taught about the second coming, and he's begun to give us these ideas. No one knows the day or hour of the end. He's commanded us to keep watch. We said that in the parables on keeping watch, that keeping watch is not a passive thing. And it's also not focused on when Jesus is coming, but on what we're doing in the meantime. Keeping watch is an active thing, not just in looking at your watch or looking for the time or the signs, but in doing what the master commands, because he's telling us that I might come when you don't expect me or sooner than you expect me or even later than you expect me. He covers all the bases in those three parables. But you need to be doing what I commanded you. We also looked at the parable of the talents, which some people could say is the fourth parable about keeping watch, specifically about how we use the talents he's given us, the money and other productive things he's given us, so that we can actually produce a return for the kingdom. And then we looked last week at the teaching. And I say teaching not because, I mean, it's not a parable. It seems like it's not at all a parable. After telling four parables, then he starts teaching directly about the sheep and the goats. And while he uses a metaphor, a simile of sheep and goats, he doesn't actually intend it to be a parable. We saw that the sheep and the goats are distinguished by their actions. Some go to eternal reward and some go to eternal punishment. They seem to be distinguished by this phrase, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And we were trying to talk last week about what does that phrase actually mean? And we debated a little bit about what does he mean? We said that a lot of people take it to mean that Whatever you do for disenfranchised people, oppressed people, poor people, that's what it means to do something to the least of these. But I pointed out that the book of Matthew doesn't really, at least the way Matthew is writing, he doesn't use that phrase in that way. That's the way we've read it. That's the way we've kind of interpreted it. But Matthew seems to mean something else. So what does that mean? We put up three options there last week. He's looking specifically at who's going to do right. So right action could mean salvation. In other words, if you do what's right, feed, visit, all those things that he's talking about in the sheep and the goats, then you will achieve salvation. 
That means that you're earning it, you're doing it, you're doing something for your salvation. That's one interpretation. The second interpretation is that this right action that he commends is really evidence of your faith. So if you had the faith, you would be acting rightly. So what he's really doing is not really separating people based on their actions or their works. He's separating people on their faith, but the evidence is through their actions. The third possibility is the one that I kind of made a pitch for, that the right action he's commending is the evidence that you would have accepted the message. Why did I say that last week and stick to it? I kind of, I think it's between number two and three, by the way. I think you could take either one, you'd probably be okay. I think the first one would be inconsistent with a lot of scripture, to believe that somehow, if you just did the right thing, you would earn your salvation. That seems to contradict a lot of things. Somewhere between the second and the third, the reason I've picked the third one is because in the book of Matthew, his use of the specific phrase, least of these, without exception, referred to the disciples. And I put the verses up there in Matthew 10, 42, 18, 6, 18:10, and 18:14. He uses that terminology to refer to the disciples. And brothers, as used by Matthew and others, almost exclusively refers to spiritual kin, not actual physical brothers in terms of kind of lineage. So you put them together, and it seems like what he's saying, again, as I said last week, the interpretation that most commentators understand from it is that he is saying that had you accepted the message and invited people in, when they went through persecution later, you would have visited, you would have taught, you would have been spending time healing and giving to those people. In other words, the way you treated my messengers implies you accepted the message of faith. And that's what he's talking about, which is, for most of us, totally different than what we've always read the sheep and the goats to be. Yeah. How are the, at least how you defend the right action, like the second and third one, I don't understand how those are different. Or like what, why acceptance of the gospel wouldn't be faith? Yeah, the reason they're very close but not exactly the same thing is some people have taken the second one to say, that just means that when you accept faith in general, you just do these things, right? The third one actually says when you accepted the messenger of the gospel, right? They're almost the same thing. It's just that the, the third one is more literal to the way that he's using the words, okay? And that's why some people have split hairs and said the third one is too restrictive. It seems like it's only focusing on accepting a messenger into your home, being not just his disciples, but anybody who ever brought you the message. So from a Eastern hospitality perspective, if you brought those people in their home, it means you accepted and believed what they had to tell you. And the reason I put up the second one and say I think that one's possible too is because the third one, while literally what Matthew is writing, may be too restrictive of interpretation. And the other one may just say, hey, if you had this kind of faith, you would evidence these kinds of actions, okay? With, regardless of whether you actually physically brought somebody into your home that was carrying the gospel message, okay? So that's kind of where we left off. I just wanted to kind of put a cap on that because as often happens in here, we had a lot of moving around. And by the way, when I put a check mark into that one, I, I just do that only because that's where most of the commentators that I've read landed. Uh, and it seems the closest to what the writer of the gospel we're reviewing used the terminology for. Let's move forward. Starting in verse 26. And by the way, as we start 26, 27, and 28, I know for the last three or four weeks, we've had some very difficult teachings of Jesus. Some of them, they're downright puzzling. But for the next few chapters, the puzzle starts to lift. Now we're, Matthew is going to take us home. It becomes much more narrative from this point forward. We're not going to be guessing much about what he's saying. He's actually going to tell us the story of Jesus marching towards the crucifixion. One other thing you should know, 
if you want to know chronologically in the Christian calendar where we are in chapter 26, Matthew has put the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday in chapter 21. So all these teachings that we've been covering have been in Holy Week. And chapter 26 begins just a couple days before the crucifixion. So all these teachings we've been going through in 24 and 25 all have been while Jesus has already accomplished the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Let's start in chapter 26. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or they, there may be a riot among the people. This has been going on for quite some time. When we read a word like then, the chief priest, we think chronologically. But actually, Matthew's probably writing more logically than chronologically. It doesn't mean that they just started at that point to do that. This has probably been going on for quite some time. We've seen in Matthew evidence that they've been talking. They've been starting to plot already for quite some time. But now it's kind of come to fruition during this time. In fact, the next couple of verses do not take place so much chronologically. We know from the other Gospels that even though we're just a few days away from the Passover, we're going to jump back for a moment to something that occurred before Jesus even enters Jerusalem, and that's the point where he's in Bethany. Okay? So this is the setup from this point forward. Matthew is saying, and you can see this when Jesus had finished saying all these things, Matthew tends to do that when Jesus is done with one of his longer discourses. So all the chapters that come before have been part of his teaching. Now he's saying, teaching time is over. Now we're going forward in the story. So going back to Bethany. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So who is this woman? Does anyone know from reading any other gospels? Here it just says a woman. Does anyone know who this is? What's one, what's one name you could use in the gospels? You'd get it right like almost every Mary. time. Mary. Mary, right? Like, like everybody's named Mary, right? You know? So there's only a couple answers, right? Mary. So who's Mary, though? Which Mary are we talking about here? The sister of Martha. Who is it? The sister of Martha. Right. It's not Mary Magdalene here. It's Mary, the sister of Martha. So who lives in Bethany? Lazarus lives in Bethany, okay? Lazarus has two sisters, Martha and Mary. How do we know this, by the way? Because this account is told in more detail in John chapter 12. So you can look at the story in more detail there. So we know in that gospel, it's actually told. And here it actually identifies that they're in Bethany. So that's who Jesus was with in the gospel accounts. Lazarus, of course, you remember the person he raised from the dead. So he's going back over there to spend some time with his friends. Now, Jesus has been saying to his disciples for some time that he is on his way to his death. He hasn't yet used the word betrayal, but he has been talking about how he's going to be handed over. So it's very possible that they know exactly what's going on. If he's been telling the disciples, why not tell his close friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, and the others who are gathered there? 
In fact, they're gathered at somebody's house, Simon the leper here, right? So Simon the leper implies that this is somebody that Jesus says healed. Because if he was still a leper, there would be nobody at his house, all right? That would probably be not allowed and also probably not wise. So Simon probably kept his nickname from the fact that he had been healed by Jesus. So this is a gathering of somebody who's been raised from the dead, <coughs> somebody who used to have leprosy, and close family friends and all the disciples, and Jesus knows that they're on their way to enter Jerusalem on the Palm Sunday entry. So this is kind of a significant time. Mary here brings with her this jar of expensive perfumes and anoints him. Now, some historical background, it's not uncommon to anoint somebody with some sort of perfume, but this was very expensive perfume. And you can see there's already these kind of allusions to him being anointed for burial, probably because he's already been talking about this with them. Maybe this is her act of showing love and kindness or an act of worship. We don't know exactly what it is that she's doing, but we do know here that the disciples object. Think about it. Put yourself in the place of the disciples for a moment. I mean, is this a valid objection? I mean, you know, I guess the best way to translate this from the original language into English is, what the heck? I mean, why is it that you're allowing this to happen? We've been up and down the countrysides talking about the poor. And think for a moment the way Matthew, as an editor or as a writer, has arranged this text. This text comes right after the sheep and the goats. We've just been talking about the way that action is so important that if you did this to the least of these, however you'd like to interpret that thing, but still there's a clear teaching about the poor and those who are in prison and all those people that seem to be oppressed. And here, the disciples would seem to be piping up going, what the heck? It seems like this is a waste. Now, you could say, are they doing that just to show Jesus they get it? Are they trying to be pious? Are they just truly shocked? Put yourself in their place for a moment. What do you think is justified and unjustified about their position? Yeah. First, I think they're shocked. I don't, yeah, I mean, it's totally interpretive on my end as far as I don't buy that they're actually concerned about the poor. And so this is my, you know, like I don't have any basis for that other than uh, I'm assuming they're so shocked that they're just saying any, like, yeah, it could be used for anything. Like, why wouldn't you give that to the poor? You know, that sort of thing where it also kind of shows more importantly whether I'm correct on that or not is they just don't have a clue about Jesus at this time, obviously. You know, like they don't have a clue about, even though he just said in verse 2, you know, the Son of Man will be crucified and handed over. Like, they don't have a clue of, of what's going on. Okay. Yeah. I would also think that they would be surprised, because I don't think it's normal every day, you know, like today or any other day, I'm not sure when, that someone would just come up to you and then start pouring perfume on your head. I mean, that ain't normal in any kind of century. Has it ever happened before somewhere? I mean, it has happened to Jesus, at least in another account somewhere. Mm -hmm. We do have somebody, and I think it's in Luke's account, where a woman comes in and dries his feet with her tears and anoints in that way. So that's probably also one of those moments, you know. And if the master of the house offered you something to anoint you or to clean, you know, that might be something, but it probably wasn't, you know, it's probably the, the, the closest thing to us would be like a hand sanitizer as opposed to breaking out some expensive perfume and dumping it all over the guy. You know? and, and I think to them, the shock is more not the activity of anointing, but the activity or, or just the value of this jar. Jason? I was going to say that. that okay. It's actually common for them as a good hospitable host to anoint the guest, um, but not what, like you said, it's not, not the, the shock is the, 
value of the perfume, not the act. Right. We see that in Luke's account in a different account. It's not the same account. He's talking about a different time when a different woman, a sinful woman, came forward. But he turns to the host of the house and goes, why didn't you do this for me? And there was clearly an expectation that that should be done for your guests when you come over. So we get the historical context that way. What I find kind of strange is that they followed Christ. They've seen him do miracles. They know basically like he's God. And so to be like, oh, God doesn't deserve this perfume. You could have used it for something better. That's what's weird to me. Because it should be like, oh, of course, your best perfume for the Lord, like act of worship. Like, that's amazing. You've humbled yourself. But it's weird how they weren't like, oh, yeah, Christ deserves this. It was like, what? You should have given. Like, I don't know. It's just that's what's weird okay. to me. Like, that's kind of what I was meaning as far as like that even that statement like they didn't think he was God and even if even though I mean Peter confessed that he's Messiah but even in that understanding there wasn't the understanding that, that he Messiah was actually is actually God, God. Right? So, I mean I would, mm -hmm. th that's why I think this this story helps to show like yeah they still don't get it like mm -hmm. even though they've seen the miracles like you've said they saw all these things they're just like they still don't get it I would quibble a little bit and just say that I think they they had fleeting understandings of who he was well, because sure. I think Peter's confession comes more than saying he was the Messiah. I think they actually identify him as the son of the living God. But it seems that that doesn't hold or they can't quite grasp what it means so much. Yeah. I don't know. Like I'd sort of disagree a little bit because I feel like that Jesus has been painting himself this whole time. Like, well, to like you have to be a servant and painting himself as a servant of everybody else. And then the disciples are saying, yeah, like, why are you having expensive perfume poured on you when there's people that need more than you? And it seems totally justified based on what Jesus has been saying. Like, even if he is God, like, there's a degree to which he's been painting, I am a servant. Like, and that's why I'm so great, basically. Like, I'm humbling myself to be this. And so, like, I, I don't know. There's some element, even, like, Jesus' response is very troubling. Like, oh, we always have the poor. Like, don't worry about it. Like, Okay, we'll come back to that part. I'll come back to the poor with you. Do you have a comment? Actually, I agree with that, that, like, it would make sense that they would that that idea of him being a servant but at the same time like he is their lord i don't think that they thought that he was god i think like you said it was more a fleeting like they had some images of who he was or they thought he was something that he, maybe he wasn't like a political leader um and that kind of ties into um this account is also in another gospel and it says it doesn't say that the disciples said it it said that judas said it and Judas, it said, the, his motivation was that he wanted the money for himself rather than for the poor. Um, and Judas was one, one that was probably thinking that he was a political leader as well and was seeing that image falling through the cracks, seeing this person breaking all of his expectations and hopes and re realizing, oh, I don't think I'm following who I thought I was following. And so maybe leading to the, the next... You're right that the Gospel of John seems to indicate that they have a little, they have more detail. First, they tell us who the person is. Second, they say that Judas is the one who objected because he wanted the money for the common purse. And John also says it's because Judas would take money out of the common purse for himself. Mm -hmm. uh, if you read the book of John, there seems to be a lot of uh, disdain for Judas more than in any other Gospel in the book of John. So you could see why he kind of pins it to him more than any other. Here, Matthew seems to adopt it for all of them, all of the disciples, right? Like, all of the disciples had this feeling. Whether they voiced it, seems like here they did, but he's kind of identifying that they all had this feeling. Is it valid, though? I mean, think of what Jesus is saying. I like Philip's kind of struggle with this. 
first, let's address where this the poor will always be with you. I mean, first, that's is that a promise? Like, hey, I'm going to make sure the poor are always around. Like, I don't think that's what it is. Okay, because some people have read that and said, hey, there's a guarantee in Scripture that there'll always be poor people, and they've taken it to the next step and made that kind of a reason not to get involved. I mean, Jesus always said there's just going to be poor people, so why even bother? We can't cure it. There's always going to be poor people. Why try? Mm-hmm. Comment. I feel like with um, with their surprise at the act, and then with Jesus' response, like to me, I read into both of those feeling like they're both communicating the ultimate value of God in a way. So, like to me, with the perfume, I, kind of more into what you're saying, I feel like there was a disconnect. Like I feel like in a way they do understand that He's God, but what the next step for them to realize is like what implications that has and how all of a sudden like everything's flipped upside down and because he's God like because that theoretical fact is true then therefore like these actions would make more sense so I, so I feel like to me I just see them as like one step behind like they're getting there but it's it's like they still have kind of this knowledge that he's maybe God but they haven't necessarily come all around the, the corner I guess and, and changed and then real quick just to kind of what Phil was saying too I think like I guess the reason it doesn't trouble me with the with the poor is I feel like the reason the poor are so important is because like God values them and because he still is ultimate it feels like I don't know like to me it feels okay that Jesus says that because it's not like life isn't about serving the poor life is about like loving God and serving God and then the poor is kind of stemming out of that so yeah, Jesus is clearly making he's look at this the poor you will always have with you. He is making a reference to Deuteronomy 15, 7, 10, and 11. Let me read it to you because he's citing back to something. If there is a poor man among you, brothers, in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother. Give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, because there's always poor people in the land, therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your brother and towards the poor and needy in your land. So Jesus is actually kind of making a reference back to something that God even said in the Old Testament, the poor will always be around. Therefore, you should be very generous. The reason I raise that is because I want to dispel any notions, and I don't think anybody in this room has them, that because the poor are always around, there's no reason to do anything because we can't get, we can't cure that problem. They'll just always be poor, so forget it. And and that is actually taught in some churches. So that's an extreme I want to dispel. But I also want to be very careful to dispel the other one. There is such a tendency, especially in your generation, to believe that God's ultimate desire on earth is social justice. That God's ultimate desire is for us to do nothing but act. And to forget that in this instance... You are dealing with Christ, who is fully God, fully man, but in this case he is pointing more to his divine nature and saying it is right that you worship and adore and even anoint me before death, even above the poor. So in a way, I don't know that I blame the disciples so much because it seems like, as you said, they're, they're, they're catching up and they're realizing, especially after the sheep and goats discussion, the importance of acting. But Jesus is saying there is something even more important than everything else that you would hold as an ethic. And I've heard this even in this group. We've talked about this. We've wrestled with it. 
it's almost like some of us want to take apart those parts we have difficulty with, the divine part of God, and just do the things that sound really good, the good deeds that we could do in his name without his name being attached to it. And he's saying, I'm above all that. A parallel that we saw is, do you remember when the Pharisees criticized the disciples for not fasting? And Jesus' response is, who would fast while I'm here with them right now? Like, there is something even more important than all the acts, all the law, everything else. I'm here. This should be the time of the greatest celebration, not fasting. The only reason that would be true is because there's something very, very special about who he is. That God dwelling with us at that point with the disciples is much more important than any fast that we could take on. Any kind of whatever the tradition. And there's an echo of that here, it seems to me. That he's saying, yes, you'll always have the poor. You can always deal. Not like, hey, you'll get to them tomorrow. But they will always be among you. As opposed to me, who is not always going to be among you. In fact, in just a few days, I won't be here anymore. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit. Yes, we have all those other things that are coming. But Jesus is basically saying, like, this is a very unique moment in time. And it is right what she has just done. Not denigrating action for the poor. But just saying that no matter how much you place yourself into a place where you think the poor, I'm doing something for the poor, that's great. But there's something even greater than that, and that's God. And if you lose sight of that, then we've lost sight of the whole thing and just turned our religion into just a great effort of social justice. As I've said, we might as well be the Peace Corps. We could be the Salvation Army without the Salvation, just the Army. <laughs> Sorry, man. I know the Army. I know. I know. Navy, too. All right. Yeah. I have a question. When somebody died, um historically and culturally, what was what did you use to traditionally anoint someone who had died? Would you use this really expensive perfume on somebody no. who had already died? Not this expensive, but this kind of perfume. Not this expensive. So in other gospels, they actually refer to it as a nard, which is kind of like an Indian kind of spice that's like myrrh that they would use to anoint the body. However, even then, families differed into how expensive that perfume could be that you would use or that, that, that myrrh that you were using for the body. Another interesting thing is that you talk about burial customs. It was customary that you did not do this for criminals who died. And it may be very possible that Jesus knows that she's doing this because he might not have the chance because he's not going to be in the tomb this way. Of course, we know that the women went to the tomb to do that very thing, but it was a little too late. He was already gone. He couldn't wait for them. So he may know that this is going to be one of the old, only times this happens. That's something that people have pointed out that said, you know, people who died unexpectedly, whatever, they would do this to him. But criminals did not get afforded this right. Maybe he knew exactly how it was all going to go down. You know, that, that's not outside the possibility. Yeah? Um, kind of going back to this whole, like, the disciples think it's such a waste Sometimes I struggle when I see um, churches that spend a lot of money on like buildings and things like that and think, well, is that worshiping God? Like maybe that extravagant perfume where they could be using it for social justice issues. So I guess my question is more of like, how, how do we find that balance today where we, yes, we want to like worship God, but yes, we do care about the poor. I'm glad you brought that up because I actually spent some time studying that. And the hardest thing there is to take a position on either side because it could tell of pride that we have. I think many of us in this room probably and many people in your generation are going to look at large elaborate structures and say, that's a waste. That's not what God would have wanted. 
Um, God did, you know, he slept in the fields. He said that he didn't have a place to lay his head. And here we're building these, you know, stadiums and these huge cathedrals to honor God. I think the problem with that perspective is not that it's incorrect in where our priorities should be. But we tend to focus so much on the social justice part of it or the part of it that deals with the poor or what we could do with the money that we forget that in some way that Christ still is worthy of worship even in this life. Many of us have translated worship to include a guitar <laughs> and singing, right? But worship can be done in the arts. It can be done in the architecture. And that's for centuries the way that worship was done in stained glass and architecture and the awe of structures to kind of declare the majesty of the Lord in some way. But many of us think, God, that was an elaborate expense. And we erred too much on that side. So let's run over to the other extreme where we say that, you know, we're only going to focus on those issues and ignore the fact that, that our God is still worthy to be glorified as a king and as our savior. I would say we need to take a middle ground, maybe in my mind closer to erring on giving more to the poor, but still not going to such an extreme that we forget that the, all of the arts, I mean, people wrote music, people painted, people built architecture, all those things in a way to point to and glorify God. I know some of us could say, was that really the purpose? I mean, was it, was it maybe could have been political? Maybe there were parts of it that was just extravagant. Some of it, you know, if you look at the history of the Middle Ages, like, was that really to glorify God? But the question arises more today, right? And we see that all the time when churches, you know, will take on a building project to, to construct an enormous gymnasium or something. Or, and you think, wouldn't that be better given to the poor? What I like about the Gospels is these questions always linger. I mean, their questions, not like disciples were dead wrong. I think he was just saying there is a time for this and there is always a time for the poor. And our question has to be, where are we on that continuum? in our time right now. Let me allow other people to jump in. Um, yeah, second note on, on just the buildings thing is one, yeah, I'm actually, I, I don't like super extravagant buildings, but we also do look past um, the ministry that happens here. <laughs> like we're in a room right now because someone built it for us to be here, and more importantly, the sanctuary. You know, so you just can't just say, oh, there's a building, but ministry happens there. And hopefully the purpose that, that people actually do those things is for ministry to the people who are part of that congregation. So, I mean, it just can't be overlooked. That does not justify extravagance. I mean, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just trying to say buildings, sometimes a lot of ministry is done there, hopefully. So. Yeah. Well, I just think it's interesting even the point you said, like, I think most people need to decide or need to go more to the side of giving to the poor as opposed to giving to the churches. And I think that might be true for most people, but I don't think that's true for this group. Like, I think as we've talked a lot, like, I mean, even this group, like, our giving doesn't go to buildings or churches. Like, it goes straight to, like, it doesn't support this ministry. It doesn't support, like, New Song. Like, and I mean, I think that that's a significant element that, like, even, like, I know we've had, like, Monique and I have talked about a lot, like, that struggled with, like, I don't know if I can feel comfortable supporting a church because of these specific reasons. So I feel like, at least in this group specifically of its nature, even, like, we need to decide more on, like, recognizing the benefits of supporting actual buildings and yeah. churches. like I think the difficulty with bringing the word church into the discussions yeah. is that here he's, he's putting Christ versus the poor, like Christ with us versus the poor always with you, not let's build cathedrals versus give to the poor, right? right? We tend to kind of confuse those a little bit sometimes. So even when you look at a church type thing, you have to ask like, 
is this glorifying Christ or is there something else going on here, right? I mean, and it, we know that there's mixed motives in all people in all places, right? But one comment that I found really helpful in reading this was uh, one of the authors basically said that if you're the type of person who thinks that everything should be done for the sake of the poor and that nothing should be done for the sake of any kind of church or, or any kind of thing that relates to the body of Christ in the world, this verse should at least give you pause. This verse should at least make you think that it's not always about the things that are very popular right now to do. I mean, we run this tension. There's people in our churches who do nothing in those areas, and we're always trying to get them off the seat to actually do something. And then we've got people who are always doing everything but need to spend a little bit more time in holy you know, reverence of God. Whether the church, though, is the same thing or not, that's a big debate. Right? And I can hear people all the time. I can hear people who justify building a basketball gym because they bring in people off the street and people get to know Christ and all that stuff. But you know what? You, you, that's more of a parable of talents thing to me than it is. Than it is, is that God or is that church? I mean, that's more of like, is that the best use of the money? Is that the best? You know, and then you're back to the parable of talents, which I think is a better place to put that. But I think here, this is really talking about the the person of Christ as as part of the triune God, like basically and how we see and view and how the disciples saw and viewed him. Okay? Anything else? Good. Thank you for bringing that up. So here's, here's another transition statement. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So we see that Judas is betraying him. 30 pieces of silver, by the way, some people point out, comes from Zechariah 11, which <coughs> the Jews had interpreted as a series of messianic identifications. I won't even call them prophecies because it's difficult to say what it was that Zechariah was doing in this section, but for a number of chapters, he's been identifying. And you're going to see in a moment that Matthew actually specifically cites back to Zechariah. So in Zechariah 11, 12, and 13, I told them, if you think it best, Give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And you're going to know as we go forward in the story and through other gospels that eventually Judas throws back the 30 pieces of silver. We have the potter's field, all those kinds of references. They're, they're, uh, they're kind of coming from this part of Zechariah. Okay, so the narrative continues. Was that a significant amount of money, 30 silver coins? Because that doesn't seem like very much money. It's not a lot. It's not very much today. It's not a lot of money. But the problem is it doesn't say what kind of coin it was. But if it was the standard temple shekel, which is probably what they would have given him, since that's their denomination from the elders and chief priests, it probably would have been the equivalent of like maybe four months' salary is what most people guess it would be. So it's not insignificant, but it's not like they gave him a million bucks. So then we have to start asking why you just betray Jesus. Some of you have already started to, I think Jason identified some of the reasons. Like maybe he was disillusioned with who Jesus was. Maybe he had a more of a bend towards like the zealot kind of idea of a messianic person who's gonna come and overthrow the Roman occupation. Maybe, some people have even speculated that maybe he thought that by forcing Jesus's hand that he would get him to reveal his true nature. You know, almost the way that the devil was saying, throw yourself down from here. Like, maybe Judas was thinking, if I can get this guy on trial, he'll do some super miracle right in front of him and save himself. 
But I don't think the gospel support that. That's a great idea. But I think most of them just seem to say, they, they range from, he just really didn't understand, he didn't like it, uh, or it could it could range to uh, John's version, which is like, you know, the devil entered him, <laughs> you know, and just made him do this. He calls him the son of perdition. John really does not like Judas, so probably when they were walking around together, they were probably the ones that were shoving each other on the road, like, hey, cut that out, man. Just, uh, what's wrong with you, man? Stop putting your hand in that money jar. Yeah. Where does this portion relate? Like, is this in direct relationship to what we just read about in Bethany? Like, that word then like, yeah, how is a very used? vague yeah. word, okay? And so that's why we keep seeing Matthew use this word over and over, the Greek word tot. It, it's, it's vague in its meaning because it doesn't always mean chronologically this happened next. It means that <laughs> as I'm building the story, then at some point, right? So it, can, it, has a, it has a lot of meanings. In this case, it's probably going on during the Holy Week. So we've moved from Bethany, which probably occurred on either Friday or Saturday before Palm Sunday, we're probably now starting the story where they're probably in Jerusalem when this happens because he has to be at the temple where he's going to meet the elders and chief priests. So that part earlier where they said they started to plot against him, but not during the feast. They're thinking, how are we going to do this? If we do it during the feast, the crowds might erupt. But if we don't, if we wait till after the feast, Jesus might leave the city because he's only here for the feast. So they're working on this thing and Judas basically gives them the solution. Here's how we can do this. I could find him a way where you can get to him and nobody else is going to really know about it. So he presents the solution to them, and I would think most people are going to say this is happening after Palm Sunday, probably Monday or early in that week where he meets with them. But it's possible he stole away from Bethany. I mean, we really don't have a time. I think I think she pulls out a good observation. Like, I would say editorially, I think that's why Matthew put that story before, because it would directly connect, even though chronologically it totally doesn't. Like what you said about logic, like that could have been something. It, it quickly transitions into that idea there's money involved, all this stuff where... That's probably why he arranges it this way. Yeah. The then could also be read as at that time or around that time. So we really are trying to put some pieces together that are difficult to peg exactly what day they happen. Do you have a comment? Um, basically almost like copying what Morgan said, but also just like in, in my translation, it's basically more of like a, a so. Or like, yeah. This happens, so this happens. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if that, because that's French, but... Um, not Greek, but I think that there is some significance to the fact that editorially Matthew stuck this passage or the, this narrative right in between talking about the priests and then talking about Is- Iscariot going to the priests. Yeah. When we say a chronological tie, like then would be like chronologically, some people use a logical tie for this word logically, like therefore or mm-hmm. so or. At, at around that time, like it's just moving the story forward. Okay? So he's looking for the opportunity. So we get to the Lord's Supper. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into that city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed and prepared the Passover. Now, in here it says, go to a certain man. It seems kind of vague, like they would just know. But actually, that's Matthew taking a shortcut. It's not Jesus. Jesus probably told him exactly who to go see. But the way Matthew writes it, he's almost like summarizing when you guys go blah, 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 like in a sentence. He's actually just saying, like, he told him to go to a, a certain man, like a so-and-so. Like, that, like, and he just wants to move forward in the story because it's not important how it happened. It seems kind of cryptic to us, but that's kind of what's happening. Okay? 
When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it was written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. So we have the classic setup for Passover where he's going to institute the Lord's Supper. And he makes this prediction that one is going to betray. Now, he said that he's going to be handed over. He said that he's going to his death. But this is the first time he's revealing that he's going to be betrayed. Probably because we just had the part about Judas finally agreeing to do it. He's explaining to them. Each one of them, by the way, shows up and says, Surely not I, Lord. Matthew adds, Lord. Surely not I, Lord. It's a rhetorical question. Like, it can't be me, right? I mean, some people are doubting, like, Maybe he knows something in the future that I don't even know about myself. Surely not I, right? It can't be me. Just say it isn't me. This word here, they're very sad. It's more like dread. They're totally upset about this. Like somebody's going to betray him? Jesus tells them, the one who dips his hand in the bowl with me will betray me. Well, if you don't think about the Passover meal, they're all dipping their hand in the bowl, all of them. So he's not really giving them a direct answer, but one of them is going to do it. So they still don't clearly get it. But he says, the Son of Man will go just as it was written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he'd not been born. The reason I highlight this section is I just like that this is one of the instances in Scripture where you see God expressing sovereignty and free will right next to each other. That it's going to go the way it's always been written. This is just, it's going to happen. But that person, woe to them, they made a choice. And you can see that he speaks these words, as he does many places in Scripture, without any notion of how these like would, to us, go, well, that doesn't make sense. I mean, either he commanded it to be from the time, or people have free will. It's like he seems to think you still have responsibility for the choices you make, even though this was written from the beginning for this to happen. And that's going to bug some of you. You don't like that. <laughs> Who's a bug? I, I don't know. I still think there's an assumption in there of how you're reading it. Like, that it very much, it, it says, like, well, yeah, this will happen as it's going to happen. And then this person will do something, not that they will, and that they will have responsibility for it. There's an assumption that because they have responsibility for it, that is like freely of their choice, like because it, it's made clear someone has to do this and someone will do it, like that will happen. Um, and I think that that creates other problems for lots of other things because it just seems to make like in just, like one or two verses clear of like, yeah, something that is going to happen and is mandated like predestined that this act is going to happen like and someone is going to suffer for it and yeah someone might choose it but like I know that so, it's, this is going to happen no matter what so I'm already setting up a situation where I know someone's going to be suffering for it like yeah. and that, that creates complications <laughs> it's not complications as much as we can't understand it I mean it'll always be a tension in the fact that God says there's many verses like this where he's saying like this is going to happen but there's clearly responsibility for the person who chose it and the implication being that they would have chosen that no matter what, so they're going to be responsible. I, I'm not going to solve it tonight because we've debated it at, at length in this group so many times and it's hard, but I can't step over this part without noting that here's one of those places again where the words it is written, especially from the way that you hear them in an Eastern context or an Eastern language, like it's like not like you know written in scripture. Like this has been ordained from the beginning of time that this was going to happen. You know, this was going to come about. It was set in stone. 
And yet, this person who chose to do it, it'd be better for them not to have been born. And I know the tension is like, well, if from the beginning of time he was gonna, this was gonna happen, like, why is it his fault, right? And that's what I think that we've always struggled with, is God seems to have sovereignty, maybe not to have caused it, but to have like orchestrated everything so that it would come about, or hedged around it, or allowed it, or whatever that part of his sovereignty is. But there clearly seems to be, in this case, a woe to the very person who chose to do it, and a responsibility that's better that they not even have been born. That's how bad it's going to be for them. So, I don't know, just a note. I know it's going to drive you nuts, but the extent of God's sovereignty is definitely outside of our knowledge. It's, it's scriptural. It's not meant for us to know. These are the secret things that belong to the Lord, and even how it works is not really meant for us to understand. You know, we have glimpses of it. We have clues of how it works, but for us to get a gain a full understanding of God's sovereignty, not going to happen. Okay, Jason. Um, I went to a biblical dinner where he described what the dinner actually would have been like, how the table would have been set up, how the guests would have been arranged and all of that. And um, he, I don't know how biblically sounded it is. I think he basic, based a lot of what he taught on, on this scripture and several other scriptures. And what he said was that based on this, the dipping um, his hand in the same bowl would be that they were, that he, that Jesus would have been in the place of the host and right behind him would have, would have been the um, host's guest of honor. And so in order for that guest, in order for Judas to have been dipping his hand in the bowl, he would have had to be the guest of honor. Either that or the bodyguard. Um, and um, there are other parts that point to that being John. Um, but the idea being, I mean, Judas was in this, this, just as, as in Bethany, it was a very intimate and special, unique time of like him being with his best friends. This is even more intimate because it's the 12 um, and he's showing them love. He washed their feet at this very same dinner. Um, and he possibly has Judas in the place of honor, showing him that he he cares for him. Um, I don't think at any point Jesus said, okay, well, you know, Judas, you went to them, and so I'm just going to let you go. <clears throat> Up until the very last minute, he's with Judas, showing him love and servitude, like being humble toward him and loving toward him. I don't think that it's that he's given him up just because that he was predestined to do it. Okay. Do you have a comment? <laughs> just going to ask if there were prophecies that um, that Christ would be betrayed in Old Testament or in stuff before. Was that part of the prophecy that he would be betrayed? Or was this kind of a new thing that developed in the Gospels, Jesus being betrayed? No, I don't think it's new, but the difficulty in answering that question is this. It depends on whether you believe the Old Testament has prophecies about Jesus or not. I happen to believe that there are many. Um, the people who believe that there are many identify up to 300 of them in different places. Okay? Um, they would take, for example, that Zechariah text about the 30 pieces of silver and apply that prospectively to Jesus. But they, they're not, they're very difficult. There's a lot of difficulties interpreting whether that really is a messianic prophecy, is that meant to apply to something else? Did the person know that it was a messianic prophecy when they spoke it? For example, in Psalm 22, there's this there's this allusion, you know, in one of the Psalms of David, there's an allusion to being to being uh, 
pierced and, and having people, you know, gambling for your clothes and people encircling you and mocking you, like all that stuff that you think, well, that's very, very strange. That seems to apply directly. And Jesus cites that psalm when he's on the cross. He's linking it back. So is he saying, hey, it's just like what David experienced? Is David actually having an experience that he doesn't even understand will later apply even more to the Messiah? And is there one specifically about betrayal? I don't remember. I'll have to look that up. Did you have a comment? Yeah, I mean, even the <clears throat> just as it is written about him, I would argue that's referring to the serpent psalms of Isaiah. Like chapter like 40, I think 49, 52, and 53. There's like four different servant psalms that are kind of, that would be my guess. So, um, but that's interesting because there are, I mean, there are talks about perversion of justice, but that doesn't necessarily mean betrayal. But I mean, there's some insights you can get from the servant psalms. Yeah, I'll show you a couple afterwards of like how the, how the, ones that are interpreted as messianic prophecies, how at least in the Psalms, there's one in Isaiah, there's one in Psalms that I look at that are particularly like, wow, that's kind of pretty telling. So I'll show you how those are and we can look for the betrayal. Let's move forward just a little bit and talk about the actual. Now here comes Judas after the other disciples have asked if they're the ones that are going to betray him. Then Judas, Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Notice he calls him Rabbi. Matthew makes you to use the word Rabbi. Everybody else called him Lord. He uses Rabbi. Maybe indicative of the fact that he thinks of him as a teacher, but this is not working out to the point where he understands that you're really Lord. Now, Lord might be a little bit of an overplay. Remember, Lord was like a, a, a title of respect. It didn't mean like God particularly. But as it's being used more and more by the disciples and in Matthew, it does have that kind of connotation. So they are clearly getting it more, and maybe by implication, Judas is refusing or doesn't want to see it or doesn't get it because he calls him rabbi. Jesus answered, yes, it is you. Uh, that's not a great translation. The better translation is, it's as you said it, or your own words have said it, or it is as you say. That's the, the closer word. So it's not even that Jesus affirmatively says, Yes, it is you, and points him out. And even if he did do that, he's clearly not doing that loud enough for everybody else to hear it because the others still don't get it. So maybe this was in hushed tones and whispers. Maybe it was the positioning of people at the table. Maybe they approached him one by one. We still don't know. All the dramatic versions of this that happen in all the movies have them like whispering or huddling or something because that would be the only explanation how we could say it says, you know, you yourself have said it. It's come out of your own mouth, you know, and then have the others not go, well, who is it, Lord? While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So we have the institution of the Lord's Supper. We have the symbols, the body, and the bread. We have the cup representing the blood to be done in remembrance. And then he makes this statement that he will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until he's at that point where he drinks with them again in his father's kingdom. Many Christians have taken this to mean that we should not be drinking because Jesus is saying, I will not drink again from this point forward. So we should not be drinking. Jeremy believes that, for example. Like, Jeremy. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I'm like, what? He's lost. He's like, what? What is happening? <laughs> so many Christians have taken that to me. I, I don't see that in the, in the writing. I don't see that it says that Jesus is instructing his disciples not to drink again. He's just saying that he himself will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until he's at that banquet in a way he's referencing the kind of the messianic banquet. Yeah. If anything I see it as the opposite. He's like, hey man, when you get to heaven we'll you know we'll have a drink. Like, 
Yeah, but the question is, the question is, what do we do in the interim, right? Uh, so which one's in the interim? And, and some Christians have said, that means that we should not be drinking. In fact, if you ask people, hey, remember, you, I know what you guys are all thinking, like, why is there Christians who don't drink? Because Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding, you know, so this is crazy. He clearly shows his favoritism for, for wine. But this is the last words he says about it. So some people have said, yeah, he might have done it at the, at the wedding, but now at the end he's saying, don't do it. But I don't really see a command that says, don't do it. And I think clearly most of you from hanging out with you, you don't see it. Okay. <laughs> all right, so let's just move on. Just wanted to point that out in, in that part. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This hymn, by the way, is part of the Psalms. I mean, it's part of the Passover uh, dinner. So they've done a number of things. And even the cup, as you know, if you've ever gone through a Seder dinner or a Passover dinner, three or four times during the meal, they raise the cup for specific things. It seems like he's at the third time that you raise the cup is when he's saying these things. That probably means he stopped and did not do the fourth time. But either way, this hymn, they would stand up and they would sing some of the closing hymns, the Passover, and then they would go forward, and then they go out to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives would be on the way to Bethany, but it looks like they're not going there, because as Morgan will pick up next week, in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is in a valley between the Mount of Olives and the, the hill on which Jerusalem is built, so there's this valley there, and that's where Gethsemane is, and they're going to go out and sleep in the fields in Gethsemane, like many of the other pilgrims did at the time when they were there for the Passover. Last part for tonight. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That is another one of those references back to the Old Testament. That's Zechariah 13, 7. All right, so this time Matthew is telling us, you know, before when I cited Zechariah with 30 pieces of silver, that's where most people think he was citing to. But this time it's Matthew himself who's quoting, saying, here it is. I'm quoting to Zechariah 13.7, another one of those areas where people felt were rich with messianic allusions or prophecies. And he's saying, quote, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, Jesus says, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I would never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. I think most of us know where that story's going. But Matthew sets it up to show us that, again, Jesus knows, even ahead of time, what is coming to pass in the next couple of days. Next week, Morgan's going to pick up in the Garden of Gethsemane and move us through the rest of chapter 26. Then we'll do 27. Jeremy's going to take on chapter 28. The only thing I would say on this last part, and just concluding, because I thought there's a lot of just storytelling here. What exactly do we take out of this last part? And you know, I just think it's interesting to me, again, that we just saw that Judas betrayed him, and Jesus gives this stern warning about it's better that he had not been born. But if you notice here, Jesus is saying, actually, you're all going to fall away. But there seems to be at least a distinction between the kind of betrayal that Judas had and the one, the falling away of the disciples. We also know, from knowing how the future chapters are going to go, and even into the book of Acts, that even though they scattered, even though Peter fell away, there was a point of coming back. So I think Judas's betrayal is different because it seems like he doesn't come back from it. He doesn't ever change course. We would say the word in Christianese, we would say repent. He doesn't change course and turn around and do the opposite of what he's done. He continues, of course, 
by killing himself, that's kind of the ultimate act. He's done. He doesn't return to undo the betrayal. But it seems that here, even as we're going to see Peter in one way, you could say he's betraying him. He's saying, I don't even know the guy. He's going to do it over and over and over. Even when he's been warned, it seems the difference is Peter has that moment of repentance. I think in our lives there's going to be times when we're just done with all these things. There's going to be times when we just can't understand it, don't like it, want to walk away from it. There are times when we've been gone from it for a while. It just seems like in this case, as we're going to see, repentance just play a big part in God's mercy, especially even with disciples who've walked with him and should know better, who've seen amazing things that we'll never, in our, well, I won't say never, but very unlikely we'll see the same things the disciples got to see. Yeah. We probably will talk about this more eventually when we get to like when Judas actually like hanging himself. But I mean, it, it, at least his response, if I remember right, is like he recognizes at least somebody like I've done something wrong, and has like guilt over it. Um, and I, I don't know, like even like it's not that he takes the full other road of saying like, okay, well then I'm gonna dedicate my life to following this as the other disciples did, but. Uh, it just seems, I don't know, like strange to just say like, no, he just continued in the same course of action. Like, that there was at least like recognition and guilt and like feeling a deservance of punishment. I don't know whether just recognizing your, that you've done something wrong is enough to qualify as repentance, okay? I, I don't know one way or another. There's so many interesting theories about Judas. I read a paper where a guy tried to prove that Judas killed himself after, sometime into the book of Acts. It didn't happen chronologically. Remember, we're talking about this chronological issue of is it logical, is it chronological? Remember, Matthew's going to stop writing at some point. He's not going to write about the Acts, right, the way Luke does. And I, I read a guy who wrote a whole paper trying to establish that actually Judas was reconciled, and then his death didn't come until much later than we think. I mean, it was interesting. I'll just say that. It was like, you know, kind of almost interesting in a wacky way. Um, <laughs> But you could, there's so much speculation over Judas's act. Is it just that he's entered by, you know, to by the devil and that he's just going to be this like unredeemable character? Somebody else writes that you know, by killing himself, he really showed no repentance. I mean, it's a special case is the best I can say because there's so many ideas that we just don't have enough, we don't have enough information, I don't think, from the narratives to tell us like, what it means. But there is clearly a distinction between Judas and Peter, let's put it that way, in the way not just the way they betray God, if, they, if you can count Peter as betraying him, but in the way they return and the way they're, you know, redeemed. So, good, good, good discussion. Yeah. I always have, like, trouble reconciling when God says something like, hey, it would have like, been better if this guy had never been born. Like, didn't you know that before you made him? Like, you and Philip could get together. <laughs> <laughs> Form the determinist club of Exodus, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, dude, we're not going to solve it. I mean... Yes, it's true. But I think he's, you have to understand that it, the better is it that he had never been born is a, is a saying. I'm not saying it doesn't mean you can't take it literally, but it's a phrase that was used in Eastern culture. You know, like, it'd be better if that person not had been born. You know, people still use that to this day, by the way. I mean, that's a, that's a phrase that's kind of, but it shows, like, a very, very strong point. Does it mean that, like, literally he should have never been born? Maybe. It's possible. Um, I think it more points to the fact that it would better that he wasn't born than that he did that act because it was the same thing with it's it would be better for you to um, tie a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the or throw yourself into the the whatever the sea yeah. um, than to 
um, what was it that he yeah then to cause one of these little ones of mine to be led astray and so I, I think that it it's not like he's saying oh he shouldn't have been born but you should realize that what you're about to do you shouldn't you should choose to like if you had the choice you should have chosen not to be born than to choose to do this action like the action is still on you but it's because of the result right the result is going to be this kind of punishment receives it's the same thing when Jesus says better you pluck out your eye than that you go to hell for whatever the thing is or you cut off your mm -hmm. hand and that your body be burned in hell the always when Jesus uses the better that it be this way he's not focusing on that thing that's the saying that of the time like better that you pluck out your eye. It's, a, it's an exaggerated statement, but what it's pointing to is that what's coming is so much worse even than this. I'm not saying that you should pluck out your eye or throw yourself with a millstone around your neck, but that the punishment you're going to ultimately get is so much worse that it would be better had you done that. You know, not go do it right now, but if you don't change the course that you're on, that would have been better. And I think that in a way, the illusion of this phrase, better than he had not been born, alludes to the punishment that he's going to receive that he wished he would never have been born. Not like, yeah, it would have been better if he hadn't been born. It's like God God knows what's better and not, right? Yeah. My final thing would just be um, the whole interaction with Jesus, with Jesus and Judas where Judas says, um, is it going to be me, Rabbi? And Jesus says, yes, it is. What's even the purpose of that? Judas knows he's going to do it. Is it just maybe to strike the fear of God in Judas and say, crap, this guy already knows what I did. I mean, what's even the purpose between that little conversation? Because, yeah, I mean, I was in something kind of like that, too, where, like, everybody had to do something, and because I was the only one who didn't do it, I basically did it anyway, even though I knew, like, so that I wouldn't stand out. So is it then just Jesus' honesty that has him respond, yes, it's you? Or, I mean, what, what is I, Jesus trying to accomplish by saying, yes, it is you? I, that I he's think, God? Well, I, yeah, I think that's part of it. And I think part of it is kind of related. Like, if what I said is, like, like about the biblical dinner, like, if he really was, like, I mean, he was invited to this place of the closest people to Jesus. So he's obviously showing him, like, that he, he hasn't abandoned Judas like Judas has abandoned him. So if he says, yes, it is, it's like he's saying, I know exactly what you're doing, you're but still I'm still showing you love. I still just washed your feet. I'm still sharing my cup and my, and my bread with you. Um, so yeah, I know, but I'm still doing all of this. Yeah, and it depends on what view you take of Judas. If Judas is still a person who had a choice or was struggling with the decision, I mean, he's about to leave and go take the guards to show them where they're going to be that night. Maybe Jesus was still saying like, you know, you said it, so you still have a choice. I mean, the biggest question about Judas that everybody has is not really here. The biggest question about Judas is if you knew this guy was going to betray you, why make him one of the 12 in the first place? But that's the whole point of what's happening here. I think Matthew is using his, you know, Matthew knows what's happened. He knows how the story ends. And he's writing this to make sure that we understand that this did not take Jesus by surprise. That would be more important to Matthew than anything else. He's not sympathetic to Judas. He's not trying to show that Judas did or didn't want to betray him. What Matthew's really trying to do is show that even Jesus being betrayed was something that he consented to. He knew about. That this didn't take Jesus by surprise. It wasn't like when they walked to the garden, he's like, what? All right? Because it's very important, as Matthew writes to the Jews, to show that this is a person who had this kind of power, who had this kind of authority, who had this kind of knowledge, and who walked to the end of the road for the purpose that he was called. And I think that's what we're missing sometimes when we're analyzing what's going on with Judas. We're missing what Matthew's trying to do. And he's trying to point to that, like, Jesus knows. 
and even lets him have dinner. And even says, yes, you've said it. It's as you've said. And in other Gospels, he lets him take his leave so he can go get the people so they can go arrest him that night. And that's just showing that he walked right into it. We know that that's the most beautiful thing about Jesus, is that not finding that equality with God was something to be taken advantage of, he voluntarily humbled himself to take on this role in humility to the Father. And even to the end, it's voluntary. We're going to see him in the Garden of Gethsemane doing the same thing, voluntarily saying, your will, not mine. All right? Let's pray. Lord, these words, we've seen them before. I pray that you just give us eyes to peer into them more deeply, maybe to see things we haven't seen. But that by itself would not be enough. Let these words dwell in our heart to haunt us even this week as we consider the passion of our Christ, the struggles that he went through, the things that he was preparing for, and the lengths that he went to in love for us, love even to suffer and die in our place, love even to extend a hand of fellowship over and over to Judas, love even to restore Peter and to set him up in his rightful place in the church, Lord, all these things. Let us marvel at the God that we serve. And Lord, let us put you in the right place on the throne, far above all of our notions of your teachings, even if it be something as laudable, something as practical, something as beautiful as helping the poor. Lord, may we put you first above all things and worship you there. In spirit and truth, we pray this in your name. Amen.